This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. I'm talking to you from the land of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and I wish to pay my respects to Elders past and present. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Helen Bartlett, who has been Vice-Chancellor of Federation University, but also uh, currently Vice-Chancellor of University of Sunshine Coast. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, sitting next to Helen at a dinner fairly recently and discovered that Helen has had, among many very interesting jobs, the job of being a midwife in a women's prison. And uh, at night, when she was doing night duty, she uh, was actually locked in a cell for her own protection. And uh, she had some very interesting insights about incarceration, but it actually speaks to Helen's uh, intrepid life, her life of uh, commitment to education and supporting uh, adults and students to learn. So Helen, we asked you to um, bring an object that represented your uh, journey as a leader and as a learner. So can you share that with us? Sure. I don't know if you're able to see this well, but um, it is a plaque. It's a lot of reflection there, but it's, a, it's an inscribed plaque, a pewter plaque uh, plate um, that was uh, gifted to me by um, a PhD student uh, who completed her doctorate um, uh, a number of years ago. And the reason it's, it's valuable to me is, well, what, first of all, what is actually inscribed in the plate, it says, thank you for being a wonderful teacher. And um, I thought that was very touching. And I've had lots of paraphernalia um, in my academic career um, that I have uh, discarded, but this is one treasure that I have um, always hung on to. And the reason um, that it brings a, a lot of meaning to me is that it reflected a period in my career when it was my first um, experience at a university in a different, working in a different culture in, in Hong Kong uh, at a very exciting point in history prior to 1997. Um, so it brings back a lot of memories of that time of teaching in a different culture and learning so much myself about um, you know, adjusting my expectations um, and uh, perceptions and so on. But also um, this particular student followed me um, back to England when I moved to another university and um, she enrolled her PhD in the university that I went to. So it, it, it demonstrated to me how important that relationship is, um, that uh, learning teacher learning relationship is and that I was so important um, to that student in uh, that learning journey. Um, anyway, I'm very pleased to say she uh, finished successfully and that PhD was so important to her career because it launched her in uh, what is now a very successful career where she's a very senior leader um, in, in another country. Uh, in, in the sector. So it's, it brings back all sorts of memories, but it also demonstrated to me the importance of lifelong learning, 
how long it takes to do a PhD when you are a mature age student and all the ups and downs of that journey and how critical a supervisor is um, to that learning journey. You know, the commitment, the perseverance, the social support that you give somebody um, and, you know, the dedication really to that relationship. So lots of um, memories and uh, lo lots of insights into the importance um, of that supervision relationship uh, with a PhD student. So you talked about um, your students' uh, experience of particularly postgraduate education. Can you talk to us about what was your experience like as both an undergraduate student and as a postgraduate student? Well, my undergraduate degree um, was uh, undertaken in a town quite removed from where um, I had been brought up. And that was all um, the trend in, in those days in, in the UK. You didn't stay in your hometown. Uh, so I went um, to Newcastle upon Tyne and um, I was in uh, the first, one of the first uh, nursing degrees um, that had been established in the country. So it was a four year degree. It was a very small group. So it was quite an inter intimate uh, learning experience, very interactive. Um, you know, if you missed a class, you, everybody would know. <laughs> there was no hiding. So, you know, your progress was monitored very closely. Um, you were an integral part of, of this very small group. I think there were only 12 or 15 of us, something like that. And, um, and you know, I had the luxury of a, of a grant. I, I was funded um, through a means-tested grant system. And uh, so I was able to devote my time to my studies and also to the student union, uh, where I spent a lot of time and uh, to the social life on campus. We had a wonderful social life. Um, and yeah, I mean, ultimately it wasn't um, the profession that I decided to follow, but it gave me a terrific foundation um, for everything really that I've done uh, further in, in my career. And uh, I did have fun as well as a student. Um, and, you know, those were the days when, um, you know, the, 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 the learning experience was very interactive. We didn't have lectures. Um, and of course, today, they've also gone out of fashion again. So mm -hmm. it's, it's just kind of interesting how things come around. Um, but no, it was, it was a good experience. But my postgraduate experience was quite different because I had been working for a number of years and I was still working when I did my PhD. Um, so it was a much more lonely experience. Um, Again, you know, that one-on-one -on -one relationship with the supervisor, um, but trying to fit in that amongst, uh, you know, a very busy job. I was, I was a lecturer at the time and also uh, undertaking a higher education teacher certificate. So I was really, really busy. Um, but um, I had managed to find a new passion. So uh, I'd sort of switched directions with my master's degree I had done, completed a master's in public policy, which took me much more into um, that uh, health policy planning arena, which I had become interested in. And then my PhD um, was focused on aged, aged care and uh, was 
absolutely fascinating. I mean, I just loved the work that I was doing, um, uncovering so much about the private nursing home sector that wasn't known about before and being able to um, just immerse myself in a topic that was fascinating and ultimately led to my second book and, and a book I think that was, um, uh, you know, quite um, important um, for um, starting to think differently about quality and standards in the sector. Mm -hmm. So you talked about your undergraduate uh, experience having a lot of fun, spending a lot of time in the students' union. Um, it sounds as though with your postgraduate one, it was quite a different experience. Oh, yes, it was totally. Um, and, you know, you have the highs and lows of um, undertaking, a, a, you know, a degree by research where you have to be so motivated. Um, and you've only got yourself in a way um, because, you know, and your undergraduate degree, you know, you, it's, you're a different, at a different age, you have lots of different motivations, um, but, you know, as a, a, a more mature adult, um, you know, doing a PhD was optional for me at the time, you know, I didn't particularly see an academic career ahead, but I was doing it because I was, I was fascinated in, in the topic, and it was an opportunity to really make a difference. Um, but it, it was a slog. It was of long, hard nights and, you know, very few days off a year and certainly not a spectator uh, sport for my long-standing um, partner and husband. Um, but, you know, again, ultimately um, managed to get there. So you mentioned, um, you talked about, in fact, your object was a gift given to you by one of your, your PhD students. Um, how, what, what was the basis for your approach to supervision? Um, very much like my approach to teaching, which was um, really focused on um, motivating the student, um, ensuring that, you know, their passion in what they were doing, um, engaging them actively, in the learning process um, and just, you know, being available, making lots and lots of time, um, you know, to support the student in the, in the learning journey. Um, and I think that's the essence of a PhD supervision, you know, is, um, you know, you, you become part of, of the student's life in a way um, and are so critical to, um, to, to their success and to their experience of learning. So, yeah, I think that that would summarize it. So you're, you've sort of touched on the next question I'm going to ask, but what's been at the core of you as an educator? And um, were there specific opportunities that you took advantage of that were fundamental to, you know, how you developed your career and then how you enacted your career? Yeah, um, look, I've always, curiosity driven, so um, never been um, uh, content with standing still, always wanting to learn more, experience more, and that's very much driven me in my, in my academic career. So I guess one of the early opportunities I took was to move to Australia in 1986, 
uh, it was something I always wanted to do. And an opportunity came up when um, uh, an Australian university was recruiting internationally for um, uh, academics to, to assist with the development of um, the rollout of nursing degrees in Australia. And given that I had been one of the first students undertaking a nursing degree in the UK, um, I thought this was a great opportunity to bring my experiences to bear uh, in Australia. So I took that opportunity and um, also, um, you know, achieved my dream of, of coming to Australia and um, worked with a group of academics from across the world uh, to establish a nursing degree. And, um, you know, then, uh, of course, many more followed. And another opportunity I took um, was to go and work in Hong Kong um, in um, 1991, when um, there was a, a chance to, again, uh, help develop um, a school, particularly in relation to research capability um, in health and, and healthcare. And um, that was, you know, an opportunity at the time that I thought, well, I'm not sure where it will lead me. And many people said to me, well, why would you do that? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not going to take you anywhere. But at the time, I felt it was, you know, an amazingly interesting thing to do. And I never regretted it. It was a fantastic experience and really opened up my, my eyes to working in different cultures. So I've always been driven to... Um, working uh, in different environments, experience new things. And, and I think that's been key to, to my life as an educator and the, the sorts of things and motivations that I've shared with students. In, in the beginning, um, I indicated that you've been a vice chancellor of two universities, two relatively small new universities, one quite rural, multi-campus, another one on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland with multiple campuses as well. What, what insights do you have about the sort of the diversity of the students that these, these sorts of universities recruit, but also the experience that they have at university? Well, the um, campuses that are more regional obviously have a very different uh, cohort of students to metro campuses. And I have worked in big metro universities as well. And I guess one of the main differences is that, um, you know, the, the students who uh, come to regional universities often um, are first in family from low SES backgrounds, um, may have, um, you know, may live in rural uh, and remote areas, um, are First Nations students, um, and, and, you know, they are, uh, they have a much higher proportion of students from equity groups than do metro universities on the whole. And um, I guess one of the, uh, the big differences that I've observed is that the students that come to these universities are just so thrilled to be there. Uh, we opened a new campus in North Brisbane uh, three years ago and uh, it's in a greenfield site and it's growing rapidly. And it's one in one of the uh, areas uh, that is most underrepresented in terms of higher education participation 
rates in the country. And you speak to those students, um, for example, this year, you know, um, the semester's not long started, and every student you speak to is just so amazed and thrilled to be there and so happy um, that they've made it. And, you know, it's, it's the aspirations um, that are, uh, are being achieved. And, and I think that's a big difference. I'm not saying that it's the only one, but that is quite striking to me uh, when you look mm -hmm. at um, the types of students that we have in regional universities. And I imagine that the connection with the community is much more personalized and much more, you're much more involved and, and connected with the community than say, if you were at, at a large um, metropolitan university. Oh, absolutely. Every single one of our campuses is totally connected um, to its, its local community. And so, you know, everybody that we meet in our communities um, is a family member or, you know, um, has some kind of connection to the students that study with us. So it is, it is a family affair and um, mm -hmm. community connection is really what differentiates regional universities from metropolitan universities. Um, and if we neglect that, you know, it, it really is a problem. So half of my life is spent on um, interactions with our various stakeholders across all of our communities. I guess the, the downside of being in that community is you're very visible after hours. <laughs> so there, there are issues around privacy and, and being a, a private member of the community rather than the vice chancellor. Well, yeah, that's true. You, you are, um, you know, it is 24 seven and uh, you, you can't kind of um, live in in regional communities with, without accepting that. So you do have to carve out a bit of um, space for, for your own private life. Um, but often that intersects with the community anyway. You know, if you're into sport or, uh, you know, cultural interests, um, it will bring you all the time into contact with members of the community. And, and that's quite lovely, actually. Uh, it's, uh, I don't see that as a downside to the job, but it does mean that um, the demands on your time are enormous. So, um... It's an interesting time now. So I'm changing the, the question a little bit. It's an interesting time in the spec sector. We've got the uh, review that's being done by Mary O'Kane. We've got a, a government that's actually interested in supporting higher education. What, what are the challenges and opportunities that you see emerging in the next short and midterm? Mm. So this really is an opportunity for to be reset and um, and I think we're all looking on it in, in that light and for regional universities where I've spent you know 10 years of my life um, I think we have enormous opportunities to really tackle the the question of um, underrepresentation of equity groups I think is this is the time for us. I mean, a lot of good work's been done, but I think now is the time to uh, really sort of put this up in headlights and say, what are, what are we going to do to reduce this gap? 
um, surely it's time that we can um, introduce some new policy settings that will really make a difference. I think until we change the policy settings, it's going to be just very slow in terms of moving that dial. Um, it's very hard to shift attrition and completion rates in regional settings. Um, you, you can, but you have to uh, put a lot of resources in there, a lot of wraparound services. And I think that there's more could be done um, more broadly for all universities to, uh, to help address the, some of the issues. And what we see, you know, every day of the week is that one of the, well, there are a multitude of um, reasons why students um, don't get to university, but why when they do get to university that they drop out. Um, and we need to better understand those reasons, but we do know that a number, perhaps the number one issue is, um, is financial hardship. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, anything that we can do to um, smooth that path for students financially, um, be it better scholarships, um, you know, improved loadings for, for um, regional universities and so on. I mean, I look back and think how lucky I was to, to get a full grant to study. And uh, I had no financial burden after I finished my studies. That would be a luxury today. Um, mm -hmm. in Australia, we may not get to that point, but I think we can do more, uh, especially for those underrepresented groups. At, at your university, what's the percentage of school leavers and um, non-school leavers? It's about 50-50. Yeah, so um, we're very used to students coming to us from all walks of life, um, many of, of whom are trying to juggle studies with home life um, and, and other commitments. So, you know, it, completing studies within the standard three or four-year period it's quite challenging for, the, for that group of students. And, you know, the more we can do to rethink um, the duration of um, degree studies, I think the easier it becomes for students from different walks of life to be able to successfully navigate um, a lifelong learning pathway where their studies can be better scaffolded. At the moment, you know, we're looking at very prescribed periods of time where we are all held up to um, success metrics, you know, mm -hmm. completion rates and employability and, and so on. But it's not that simple. And I think there does need to be more nuancing around measurements of student success uh, to accommodate the different worlds from which people come and uh, to better support um, and better scaffold a learning experience that is, is more lifelong. There's been some recent research that's been done on the age group of where students feel sort of most isolated and alone, and that's between the age of 13 and 23. So part of that between 13 and 23 are our school leaders. Do you, have you got any observations or comments about how universities could better support that sense of isolation and lack of belonging that many students feel? Mm. 
It's a difficult one. And I guess um, we focus very much on the transition from school to university for those students. So um, a focus on enabling studies, that is a really important uh, offering um, that, that universities in Australia have. And, um, you know, to, to provide um, that bridge so that they can uh, better uh, orientate themselves to a different kind of study and to understand what university life will be will be about. I think that's something that can help and to set up um, peer support, you know, peer support for students, I think, as they navigate those difficult age trajectories it is really important. So we do a lot of work in schools. Um, of course, it's all focused around ultimately um, attracting students into um, higher education. But I think some of it's also about helping with their development needs, their learning uh, journeys, and, um, and also their, their social experiences. So the more I think opportunities you can give to uh, those age groups to interact with peers uh, from outside of their immediate environment, opening up their worlds, you know, to new possibilities to help them gain confidence in different settings as well. Even, um, you know, helping um, a small group of students to get on a train to show that they can get on a train from near their home to a university. And we have a, a, a station in the middle of one of our uh, campuses. But, you know, life experiences don't always assist students to take those sorts of steps. So some of those practical um, living experiences to help increase their confidence um, and, uh, you know, that, that's the sort of thing I think that we can do more of. We do a fair amount of it, but I think that could be extended to broader age groups. I've got two more questions to ask. The first one is, what advice would you give to the younger Helen? And then what would you say to, or advice would you give to aspiring leaders, uh, senior leaders in the sector? Mm. To the younger Helen, well, look, I was never one for taking advice, I have to say. <laughs> and I never particularly sought it either. Um, so, you know, I'm pretty satisfied with, with the choices I've made. But I guess if there's one thing um, I would advise um, the younger Helen, it would be to take a bit more time out. You know, perhaps I should have been one of those students that would have benefited from a gap year. I don't think I was ready uh, to start university um, when I did. And, and I think a gap year traveling, because I loved travel, um, that would have, you know, got me a bit more focused, I think, on where I wanted to go. Um, and then perhaps even, you know, later in, in my career, taking more opportunities to have time out. But it is hard once you get on you know, that career ladder to carve out decent periods of time to experience different things. But I suppose I've managed to build in um, 
a fair amount of travel in terms of the jobs that I've um, been lucky enough to to have offered me and so I've managed to combine a lot of that uh, experience of living in different places and traveling through my research as well which has taken me all over Asia mm -hmm. but I think it's always good to take time out to reflect and um, you know to recalibrate when you're not sure where where you're going and uh, what would you say to aspiring senior leaders oh I, I would say um, you know uh, move out of your comfort zone as often as you can um, you know look for opportunities to um, that are you know beyond what what you're comfortable with so if it's travel looking for or looking for positions overseas having secondments uh, um, elsewhere you know looking to um, expand your worldview uh, I think this is something that I um, say to a, a lot of um, younger academics, you really need to, you know, to get a worldview uh, for you to be the best possible teacher, researcher, uh, academic that you can be. Um, and uh, never to lose the um, curiosity. Um, and don't be afraid of putting your hand up, you know, offering to do things um, that you think might be a challenge, but, you know, if nobody else is, you know, why can't you put your hand up? Make yourself known um, and, and gather those experiences, uh, which can be very satisfying rather than always sort of keeping with the tried and tested. So, Helen, I, uh, there is one last thing I'd like to ask you. If you walk out of your office, can you tell the people that listen to this what they're likely to see? What they're likely to see? Yes, in the grounds of your university. Ah, well, um, if I look behind me um, in one of our lovely green spaces, I can actually see some kangaroos at the moment. <laughs> and believe it or not, I mean, we've grown so much but the kangaroos have stayed. Uh, we're in a beautiful setting, uh, lots of wildlife and beautiful um, nature. Um, you know, we can see students, which is very nice, uh, although it is getting a little late in the day for, for students. But um, we, you know, we've had a very active um, student engagement uh, this year, probably more students around than ever I've seen since I came here. Of course, I came here during, um, COVID and um, you know some beautiful buildings um, sun is shining which is which is very uh, usual here on the Sunshine Coast um, yeah it's a very peaceful um, very pretty environment but also it's it's got some nice you know it's nice it's got some nice student life as well. Helen thank you for being generous with your time and talking to me this afternoon. And uh, I look forward to another time when you and I can have a dinner conversation at a Universities Australia's event. So thank you again for this afternoon and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Judith. It's been a pleasure. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.